Amen, amen, amen. Can we say amen? amen? All right. How many of you here, to start with a quick question, how many of you have ever had an unexpected surgery? Okay, quite a few. <laughs> quite a few. So uh, I had an unexpected surgery a few years ago. Uh, my gallbladder needed to be removed. And so the surgeon, they always have the surgeon come in and meet with you, right? Uh, that's to make you feel good. And uh, the surgeon comes in, and, and I had one question for him. How many of these have you done? Because think about it. At some point, a surgeon, someone's going to be the first surgery. <laughs> someone's going to be their first one, right? So you don't want to be that person, do you? Okay, friends, I'm going to need a little more interaction than this. If you were, if, let's say tomorrow you woke up and uh, it's career day and you have a new career, you're going to be a brain surgeon and you got a surgery scheduled at noon. How many of you feel confident about doing some brain surgery? Anyone? You probably want to take a class or two. Who here would want to take a class or two? Maybe get a little training? Yeah, that's good. And I think I'll just open it up, meddle around, see what happens. If you were to run a marathon, how many of you think it's a good idea to start your training once they pin your number right on your shirt? Yeah. Or uh, if you were to go to Carnegie Hall and they, they, they put your name in lights, you're going to play Moonlight Sonata and other classical pieces by memory. Uh, how many of you would want to practice a little bit before you do that? Yeah? yeah, so everything in life, right, that is worthwhile doing takes this. It starts with a P, has an R, an A, and a C. It takes practice. And so it is with love. So it is. We all need some lessons in training and love. Training is essential for any significant endeavor in life, running a marathon, becoming a surgeon, learning how to play the piano. And it also is true when it comes to love. So welcome to Love Training 101. Are you excited? Yeah. All right. We're going to read the greatest words, perhaps, that were ever written. And it's interesting because the book of faith says, you know, faith's pretty good, hope's pretty good, but the greatest of these is love. So the greatest, so we ought to be good at what's greatest. So 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to read a couple of versions of this. This is from the NIV. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have had faith that can move a mountain, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess over to the poor and my body over a hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I am nothing. For, and this, you know, this is a great part of the passage, and if you ever want to know how you're doing, just take your name and substitute it for every time you see the word love. So let's see. Love is patient. Love is kind. Let's see. John is patient. John is I'm already in trouble. <laughs> Maybe you're doing better than me. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not irritable. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Boy, that's hard to do, right? Because what do we always ask? What's the score? What's the score? Hey, I don't have the game. What's the score? But we do that in our relationships all the time, don't we? Well, you did it to me. You did it to me last week. Uh, trust me. Trust me. We keep score. Don't, don't look at me like that. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, I'd like to read another version of this, and I want you to join me. We're all going to be scripture readers together today. Uh, you can even read it on, at home. It'll be on the screen. This is from the message, Eugene Peterson's translation. Uh, it is a great translation of the Bible. So let's read this t- together. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force on others. Love isn't always me first. Love is not irritable. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Love doesn't revel when others grovel. Love takes pleasure in the flowering of the truth. Love puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best, never looks back, and keeps going to the end. True love does not come to an end. So now I like both versions, amen? Just in case you're in the slow remedial love class, one more time, we're going to do this. I wrote just a really contemporary, very easy, pithy sort of version, my own little version of this. Love is hugs. Love is a pick-me-up. Love is when two become one, right? That's what they say at the wedding, the two become one, and on the honeymoon they decide which one, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, come on, friends. Love is friendship. Love is sharing the last piece of pizza. Love is hard to explain for sure, right? Love is unbelievable. Love is unpredictable. Love is endless. Love is protection. Love is a roller coaster, amen? Yeah. Love is a smile. Love is a heartbeat. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is a never-ending story. Love is eternal. Love is a circle of friends. Love is a circle of eternity. Love is a circle called God, right? Because that's what Scripture says. God is love. 1 John 4, 7, God is love. Love is, as the Beatles sang, all you need, all you need is love. And I really want to rescue this passage of 1 Corinthians from all the weddings that I have read it at, all the romantic captivity at weddings. I did a wedding in San Antonio. This was the group that I did uh, at, when our group went to Fiesta, Texas. I broke away and went and did it at um, it was a very interesting bride. She's goth, um, black roses. It was a very interesting bride. Never seen anything like it. And uh, I do all kinds of weddings because we've covered this, right? It's Jacob's Scholarship Fund, okay? And uh, so if you need a wedding, I'm your man. I don't care what we're doing here, okay, whatever. But I just, I sometimes, like, so they, they wanted 1 Corinthians 13 read at the wedding. So I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading this, and then the couples are going to do their own vows. Let me give you a recommendation, couples. Don't do your own vows. They're terrible. You can't remember them. You're nervous, and they're just usually, so he does his vows, and they're like, Oh, I love you forever. I'll never forget the day we met at Waterburger. I'm like, really? Come on. <laughs> Do you remember your order at Waterburger? So anyway, so <laughs> I'm not really sure how to tell the story because I could tell it one way, I could tell another, and I don't want to offend anybody. But she had her vows, and um, so we're all lined up. The bridesmaids, groomsmen, we're, we're in the middle of the ceremony. Parents are there. Everybody's there. We're in this little gazebo in, 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 in King Park in San Antonio. And it's a nice setting, and, and she's going to do her, her vows. And so I turn to her, your turn to do your vows. 
And she's like, oh, I put them in my phone. Where's my phone? Take a wild guess where her phone was at. It was on her. And so one of the bridesmaids, there, your phone's in your... I'm just like, I, I think I've done too many weddings now. That's it. Anyhow, so what is love? It's everything. It's everything. Spiritual maturity is to be measured by love, period. Period. Paul does not write this. Paul wrote these words as a, he did not write this as a valentine to the church in Corinth. He wrote it to them because they were terrible at love. And what Paul is saying is love is about the acquisition of a certain kind of character. We often think, how many of us think, I have thought this, God, I would be so much more loving if you'd put more lovable people in my life. I'd be such a better pastor if I had a better church. You're saying we'd have a better pastor than you. I know what you're saying. But Paul does not say, go find more lovable people to be around, although that's not a bad idea. He says, commit to allowing God to grow you into a more loving person. For love is patient, love is kind, love is beyond envy. To love means I have an inner orientation where through the power of God, I will and I work for the good of another So here's the text. We're only going to look at four words today. We're going to concentrate on four whole words in this message. This is a very simple message. Love is not irritable. Turn to your neighbor right now and tell them love is not irritable. This is actually the entire message of the sermon. You could leave right now. Love is not irritable. You know, sometimes you go hear a message, you go to a church, you go to a sermon, and people say, what was the message about? And you go, well, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of confusing. You talked about a lot of things. I'm not really sure. That will not happen today. Because when that happens, when you're confused about what the message is, it makes me irritable. <laughs> Love is not irritable. And this is needed because what I have found is that life is full of irritants. I got an amen. It irritates anything that causes frustration. A boss that causes frustration. A job that causes frustration. Poor service at a restaurant. A relative, you know the relative, the one that always sits by you at Thanksgiving. Even when you go to the kitty table, they're right there. <laughs> the coworker who makes you look bad in a meeting. You're running late. Traffic is irritable. How many of you ever said, I love the traffic of Austin? <laughs> Somebody deliberately, this happened to me just yesterday, <laughs> just yesterday, and Renee was watching me because she's like, you're preaching on this, and yesterday someone cut me off, almost hit baby doll's car. I had to brake really quickly, think quickly, and I found myself seized with a desire 
to gesture at them in a non-faith-based manner. <laughs> but I didn't. I said, remember, you're a pastor. They might know you. They might come to church tomorrow. Or how about a long sermon? Do you ever get irritated at that? Come on, be honest. Yeah, my dad watched last week's sermon. He texted me. He said, I enjoyed all three sermons, John, all three. <laughs> Here's the rub, right? right? The rub is the number one irritant in life is other people. It's you. You're my number one irritant. And I'm your number one irritant. We say at our church, hey, and we mean it, right? We say everybody's welcome here. And we don't want to welcome you here so we can, you know, change who you are, or change your orientation or anything like that. We're not trying to do that. We're not trying to be tricky. We like really mean that. We welcome everyone. Absolutely. And that's true. What we don't put on the website is it's also true that everybody is irritating. <laughs> but Paul says love is not irritable. Notice he does not say love never gets angry. He says love is not easily angered. Jesus got angry. God gets angry. Anger is an emotion we experience when our will is frustrated. The purpose of anger is to, to give you the energy to deal with your frustration. But irritability is a mood, right? And moods last longer than emotions, right? You ever have a mood? You ever have your spouse that's in a mood? Hello? Oh, it's just me. Okay. A mood is a predisposition or tendency uh, towards a certain kind of emotion. Generally speaking, you know this, there are two types of moods. There's a good mood and a bad mood. Yes, irritability would be a form of a bad mood. Moods or moodiness, right? You hear people, oh, you're moody. That is deeply, if you hear someone say you're moody, that is deeply related to your spiritual condition. When we seek transformation that's beyond our willpower to change things, to manage our sinfulness, we want transformation of our very soul, which involves transformation of our mood. Now, let me ask you the question this way. How many of you believe in gravity? Most of you. Well, reasonable crowd here. You believe in gravity. That's good to see. I'm glad to see your hand up. If your hand's not up, um, please don't send me another conspiracy video, okay? Thank you. I've gotten enough of those. I don't need another conspiracy video from any of you. I believe in gravity. So here's the deal. If you believe, if you believe just like you believe in gravity, that there is a God who knew you before you were born and created you and formed you and fashioned you, right? And then he, he, he sent Jesus to be this joyful, generous, loving human being and, and, and that was the Son of God, and that he climbed up on the cross and said, I love you this much, and paid the price for all of your sins. Your future is forgiven. Your past is forgiven. You have a ticket to heaven. You are going to go from life to life if you really believe in that, like you believe in gravity, and you really believe that God loves you and that God will never give up on you, and his eyes on the sparrow, and his eyes on you, and he's watching you. And there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And that Jesus rose from the dead, came out of the tomb, was real. It wasn't in the disciples' mind. He really rose from the dead. 
If you really believe that, then death has lost its sting. And God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever imagine in your life if you really believe in that, like you believe in gravity. What should be your general mood most of the time? You should be in a good mood. Love and joy and peace should be your default mode. If I'm mostly in an irritable mood, my mind is probably thinking about other thoughts than the thoughts I just laid out for you, right? By the way, just a quick question here. By the way, who, who among who is in charge of what happens inside your mind and controls your thoughts? That would be, starts with a Y, has an O, and a U. Who runs the programming department of your thoughts? Who's responsible for deciding how your thinking will be today? It's not a trick question, church. It's you. That would be you. And that's actually very important when we think about love. Because the greatest and ultimate freedom that you have is you can decide what will occupy your mind. You're deciding it right now. The greatest and most important freedom of your life, which nobody can take from you, is the ability to decide what you'll focus your thinking on. And I learned this from Viktor Frankl in reading his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Because he stood there in Auschwitz, he's a Vienna psychologist from Vienna, as he stood there, a Jewish psychologist, being shaved down, being completely naked, humiliated, everything taken from him, his family dead. You know what he said? They could take away everything but my ability to hope and my ability to think that I will survive this and I will get out of here one day. And he did. And it's powerful because your neurocircuitry is very important. And you can choose your thoughts. You can. How many of you decide who you let in your house? Do you, do, you just, do you just open up your door and say, everyone, come on in? You lock the door. If someone rings the doorbell, I know what you do. Shh, quiet. No, no, go to the other blind. Crap, it's the Girl Scouts. Don't say a word. I got enough cookies, right? And then you're like, then you can't leave because they're walking the neighborhood. You can't go out of your car or your garage. <laughs> this is just my life. So you, if you're an angry person, you're habitually dwelling on irritable producing thoughts without even noticing. Where does an irritable person, irritable person get angry? Everywhere. Everywhere, at home, at work, at school. At the DMV, I think that's actually justified. We live in what's called the age of outrage. In a restaurant, at a bar, at a store. People get mad at church. It ticks me off. <laughs> Events that a joyful person would be able to accept with a little bit of patience or try to help out in a simple way, they just don't do that. For instance, let me give you a for instance. Perhaps I was, it might have happened to me, I'm not sure. Perhaps three days ago, I needed some coffee. Have you ever really needed coffee? I am a person that needs coffee on my way to coffee. I love coffee. I think coffee is a faith drink. I love vanilla latte. And I like Stingers. Stingers has pretty good vanilla latte. If I can't get to Stingers, I like the, the, the French vanilla over at Stripes. It's not bad. Not bad. So I just happened. I had to go to a meeting, and I had to be somewhere, and I didn't have much time. But I thought, I have enough time 
to get to Stingers and get my coffee and get to the meeting. I have enough time. So I'm hurrying over to Stingers, and there at Stingers is a guy in front of me, and he is just having a wonderful conversation with the barista. They're talking about everything, the kids, the wife, the soccer game. He's already gotten his cup of coffee. I'm sitting there thinking, hey, the shot clock has expired. You need to move on, sunshine. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm in a hurry. I'm impatient. There's people forming in the line. What's the matter with this guy? Don't you think there ought to be a shot clock for how long you can have a time at the register? Sorry, your time's up, sir. Get on. Or I could have thought to myself, man, this is great. What a wonderful thing that this customer is being treated with dignity and warmth like a wonderful human being, and that kind of inspires me, and I should treat people like that all the time, even when I'm in a hurry or a rush. See, I could have the same set of circumstances, but I could have two different sets of thoughts. Are you with me? Yes? Somebody say amen. Amen. Love is not irritable. Again, Paul doesn't write here, try really, really hard not to be irritable. Have you ever done that with a three-year-old? Try really, really hard not to be, <laughs> to be patient. Trying really hard to be patient with a three-year-old doesn't work. You cannot manufacture it. So what do I do? I aim to be immersed in God. I aim at being pervaded, being immersed through the love of God. I aim at, like, becoming a different person. So because I think irritability is a gateway drug. It leads to sarcasm and resentment. And over time, it destroys marriages. It can destroy your relationship with your kids. It can lead to hostility and even violence. Now, not all irritable people are violent, but for sure, all violent people are irritable. And they often start with irritability. Love is not that way. By the way, what's this message about? Love is not irritable. It's very simple. What is it that produces an irritable character? Well, this is connected to the vexed observation that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. What does that mean? No record of wrongs. You want to have a long, happy marriage? Short memory. We're all record keepers. We all have certain memories and certain thoughts that we store up in our minds and bring back to awareness on a regular basis. I remember my wedding day. I remember the honeymoon. I remember the day that that my wife gave birth to our two boys. I remember those days distinctly. I remember, one, thank God I'm not a woman. Two, Lord, help her. And no, I don't want to help her push, doctor, please. Irritable people keep a record of when they've been wronged. They do this in their minds. They do this by recalling and rehearsing and playing again like a rerun you see on TV, the wrong things that have been done to them. I replay it over in my mind. I rehearse it. And what does that do? It makes me feel morally superior to you because then I will tell other people about it, right? Can you believe what they did? Let me tell you what my wife did the other day. Oh, my goodness. It was terrible. She was so wrong, wasn't she? Wasn't she? Come on. Nobody said amen. And I indulge in self-pity. 
and I find people who enforce my victimhood and my moral outrage. And there's my spiritual gift, pouting. I like the hair on that baby, frankly. <laughs> my spiritual gift is definitely pouting. I pout better than anybody. And you can do this in a marriage really, really well. Like when you've been married a long time, like me and Renee have, and you just pout a little bit. You just pull back a little bit emotionally to the point where she'll go, is something wrong? And you go, no, no. Or Renee will do this with me. Like I know something's a little bit off, but I'll go, hey, is everything okay? And she'll do this. Everything's fine. <laughs> the word fine does not mean fine, gentlemen. When your wife says she's fine, she's not fine. You're in trouble. So I like to pout. The first thing that happened to me in the world, the doctor slapped me. And I still hold it against him. <laughs> Think about this. If I could remember Bible verses as well as I could remember all the wrongs that have been committed against me, I'd have the whole Bible memorized by now. Of course, after a while, what happens when you think about all the wrongs that have been done to you? It's like autoplay. It's like Pandora. It's like Spotify. It just goes off in your mind, and you just, you just replay it automatically. And you wonder, why in the world would anybody do this? Why would anyone think about all the wrongs that have been happened to them? Well, Frederick Buechner answers the question for us. Frederick Buechner is a great writer. He put it like this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel, the, both the pain you're given and the pain you're given back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is you're wolfing down, in the, is what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. In other words, anger consumes you. Of course, sin is always that way, and that's why it's forbidden by God. It destroys human beings as we sin against them and destroy them. Now, here's what's critical. Love keeps records. Absolutely, love keeps records. It just doesn't keep records of the wrongs. Paul's saying, hey, love keeps records, but not of the wrongs. Because we're all record keepers. God has this amazing gift, and the amazing gift he's given to us is memory and record keeping. It's part of what gives us identity. It's who I am. I remember. Love remembers gifts to be grateful to God for. Qualities in other people that I admire. Moments of joy that I get to savor. Suffering that I might actually be able to help out. Injustice that I might be able to relieve. Love remembers reasons for hope. We remember, our church remembers, as we're now a Purple Heart Church, we remember the sacrifice of veterans and those who gave us the freedom to gather freely today. Amen? We remember. Love keeps a record of rights, not of wrongs. Paul put it like this, hey, look, whatever's true, whatever's noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything, anything, right, is excellent or praiseworthy, you should think about those things. It's, it's so amazing. Some people think, like, I meet people and they're just like, you know, you gotta, all you can read is the Bible and all you got to think about is the Bible. 
No, that's not. The Bible actually says if there's other stuff that's worth thinking about, think about it. The Bible points us to other places that God's alive and well. Because again, the greatest freedom in your life is the freedom to decide where your mind's going to dwell. And irritable people place their minds in the wrong stuff. It's about perspective. I can get mad that stingers took too long to get my coffee, or I can celebrate the fact that someone was treated with love and warmth and dignity. That's not all about me and my time and my coffee. That's not self-serving. Paul actually uses the same exact word earlier in a Philippians passage that he uses in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says you're commanded to focus your mind. See, here's what we never talk about in the church. Indulging in wrong thinking is actually a sin. Like worry is a sin, but nobody ever, we never have a, you know, like a, you're a sinful person, you worry. We're proud of worry. That's what amazes me when I counsel couples. They're just proud of, I, I worry all the time. I won the worry merit badge. I'm great. Do you like this? No, but it's, it's, it's from my family. It's my grandparents, me. Well, you don't have to be like this. Indulging in wrong thinking is a sin. Nobody can see it, but it's sinful. And this matters to God because God's created your brain. And your brain's designed to be a record keeper, but of the rights. And literally, every time you think a new thought, new synapses get formed in your brain. This is so, so true, right? Have you ever learned, how many of you took Spanish in high school? How many of you are fluent in Spanish? <laughs> they're like two hands up, and they're from Mexico. <laughs> I remember the, the, the two girls we had in Spanish class all through college. I took four years in college, right? Yo estudio mucho, four years. And that's all I remember. Anyhow, there's these couple girls who were from Spain. That's like me taking English in Russia. I'm not too worried about the class. But literally, every time you think a new thought, you're forming a new synapse. And so when you learn, relearn something, right? So everyone that took Spanish in high school, if you were to go back and relearn Spanish now, you're going to learn it faster and quicker and more memorable. It's called the Ebbinghaus effect because you learn things the second time much quicker because your brain's already got the groove. It's already got the groove. So some of you are really good at going down the groove of all the wrongs that have been committed against you. And it's all about you. It's all about you. Let me tell you one more time. If you send me, please do not send me another video about how the government wants to put in your arm a chip from the COVID vaccine. Let me tell you why. You're not that important. Oh, the government's going to track me. I'm Pastor John. I'm not going to allow you to put a magnet in there. I'm going to pay for you to track me on my AT&T cell phone. <laughs> that if I mention the word tires, up comes up on my Facebook. Every tire you can imagine. They're already listening. But it's not because they care. It's because they want to sell you something. Love thinks excellent thoughts. And that's why loving actions and loving words flow more automatically as a loving person because they reflect what's going on in the inside. Love keeps excellent records. In love, I live in the recurring thought that I'm loved and cared for by God. Right? I believe it like gravity. And then that leads me to look for other people that I might show love to. To whom can I show kindness? That's the question. 
I want to show you a text message someone sent to me, and it's an example of someone who lives in love. This is a Christian that's selling a car. He's selling it in an unusual way. So the person responds back to the Christian, it's a $1,200 car. It's a cheap car, but it gets you around. Reliable. I know you're asking $1,200, and that seems like a good price. Would you be willing to hold that car until next week? I really need a car, but I have to wait until my taxes come. And the Christian responds in the blue here, sorry, I already told someone I wouldn't hold it. So the, the buyer says, that's fine. I've had a hard time finding something reliable in my price range. I'm borrowing my mom's car now, but it's tough to get me and her to work and my kids at preschool, but we're making it to work. Hopefully, I'll get my taxes back next week. And the Christian says, no problem. I actually just want the car to someone who needs it. If you need it, you can have it. Thanks so much. I'll let you know as soon as the direct deposit comes through. So excited. But they don't get it. No, I mean, do you want the car for free? I want to make sure whoever got it actually needed it. So I didn't list it as free because everyone would have needed it, but probably just resold it. And now here comes, you know, because when you love people, they're like, what? Are you serious? You don't have to do that. The price is fine. I wouldn't feel right not paying for it. And then the Christian says, no, seriously, I want to give it to someone who needs it. And you seem to generally need it. It's yours. No money needed. And then the guy says, I'm crying. Are you kidding? Why would you do that? Why would you love me? Love's unexplainable, right? No, not kidding. I don't need it, and I figure someone else did. I'm glad you'll be able to use it. Can you meet today or tomorrow? And then he says, are you sure? I'm so excited. I can't believe this. You don't have any idea how much this will bless me and kids. Oh, my God, I'm literally crying right now. Yes, I can meet you whenever you want, but I definitely don't have money to pay for it right now. He's still on the money. <laughs> Lol, no money needed really except to register, I guess. Let me know if you need help with that too. I want to get you driving at ASAP. Thanks so much, all caps. Are you real? This feels like a dream. Right? Because when someone loves you and it sounds too good to be true, you're like, are you real? Is this a dream? Love feels that way, doesn't it? Because love is not irritable. Seems like such a trivial word, irritability. But a soul can live or die on that, right? A soul can hang on it. It's interesting. You look at this word. You can actually, I've been talking about your thought life. You can actually see this in the biblical story of David and King Saul. Israel, with King Saul and David, was doing great. They were winning battles, and they had just won a major battle. People were celebrating. People were, were singing songs. There was a parade. And they were singing songs about how King Saul had slain thousands. And David, who worked for King Saul, had slain tens of thousands. We're told this made Saul in the Bible, quote, very angry. That that refrain, that's, that David had killed more people than him in battle, had been better, a better warrior in battle, that displeased his thoughts. And what kind of mood was Saul usually in? If you read Scripture, you'll see Saul was in an irritable mood, a bad mood, because he was irritable. You could easily translate this, he was in a bad mood, because certain thoughts took root in his mind. And the Scripture actually shares those thoughts that King Saul had in his head. This is where his thoughts. The people like David more than they like me. Nobody wants me for a king. I'll probably never really get the credit I deserve. David's probably trying to take my crown. It's my crown. I got to keep my crown at all costs. I can't share it with anybody. 
And Saul has envy and resentment, and he reruns his mind on those grooves. And now notice he could have been in a great mood. They had just won a great battle. David is working for him. David is loyal to him. David will die for him. And, he, and all he can do is think, oh, David gets more of the glory than I do. His habitual thoughts meant precisely the conditions that could have produced joy and gratitude in any other leader produced resentment in him, and it ripened into hate. So the same set of circumstances can lead you to peace and gratitude, or it can lead you to, hey, it's all about me getting my coffee on time. Irritability. And if you read Saul's story, he's consistently in a foul mood, and it leads him to hate. He eventually tries to kill David. His son, Saul's son, Jonathan, had become David's best friend. When Jonathan found out what his dad was doing, Jonathan, Saul's son, confronted his dad and said, that's not right because that's what love does. It confronts. But then his dad got mad, right? King Saul got mad at his own son and tried to throw a spear at him. Here's what happened next. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. The Bible, of course, is not a book just of moral object lessons, but I think we're to understand in this case, in this case, Jonathan's anger was a good and noble thing. Saul was counting on Jonathan to be afraid. Fear is a high-energy emotion that drives us to leave the situation. Anger is often a high-energy motivational thing that leads us to confront, and that's what happened. Saul was hoping, I'll throw a spear at my son, <laughs> maybe I'll kill him, maybe he'll run away, but... Jonathan confronts him. Jonathan wanted to save his friend David. Now, you might be sitting here wondering, Pastor John, when am I entitled to fierce anger? Because that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> well, if your father is trying to kill your best friend, and when you talk about him, he hears the spear at your head, I think it's a healthy response to have fierce anger. A lack of anger when it's called for can be as serious as too much anger. Managing anger is a very important thing. It's amazing that, <laughs> you know, Saul, even though he did this to his son, Jonathan, Jonathan would actually end up dying, right, by his father's side, fighting in a battle. He died for his father. And then when David did become king... He asked, is there anyone left in King Saul's kingdom that I might be a blessing to? This person that tried to kill me, I'm going to just love them. I'm not going to be irritable. And there's a young man, uh, young Methuselah, who was with David. And Methuselah was the grandson of King Saul. He should have been David's rival and enemy, yet in four times it says that this, this person ate at the king's table. He, David invited him to the table. He should have been an enemy of David, and David said, no, you know what? You're the grandson of the king that tried to kill me. It's okay. You come and eat with me. Have you ever been shown love by someone that you thought you were going to be shown hate? David says, the Lord's my shepherd. I lack nothing. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David thinks to myself, I'll give this person a free car. I'll feed him. They think he's my enemy. He's the son of the former king. He could have been a rival for my throne. I'll take care of him because love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love endures all things. Love is long-suffering. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not irritable. 
Now, here's what I've discovered. I've discovered as a pastor it's a lot easier to talk about love than to live it. It's so easy for me to preach on this, and yet so hard to live it. But the tipping point of spiritual maturity becomes when you move from I should do this to I would do this and I will do this. So there's a, a parable that I'm going to end with, and I hope you're all listening. Are you all still listening? Say amen. amen. If you're listening at home, type in amen right now so I know you're listening. This is a, a metaphor. Um, I've heard it at uh, 12-step meetings. Um, Everyone should go to 12-step meetings. I don't care if you struggle with alcohol or drugs. 12-step meetings are just basically, hey, look, your life's unmanageable without God. That's step one. All of you are there. (laughs) Step one. So anyway, there's a group of addicts, and they're on a boat called Recovery. And they're sailing off to sobriety and moral sanity and a life well worth living. And there's a woman named Mary, and she runs to the dock, and she sees the boat called Sobriety has already left the dock. And she's standing there on the dock, and she's thinking about, man, maybe I should swim or not. And so everyone on the boat called Sobriety says, Mary, Mary, jump in the water, swim to the boat. Come on, you can make it. So Mary jumps in the water. And Mary starts swimming, and she's swimming as hard as she can to the boat called Sobriety. But then she starts to sink, and she's sinking down in the water. She's going underwater, and she's beginning to drown. And everyone on the boat can see why. She's holding this huge rock, and she's trying to swim with a rock. And everyone on the boat says, drop the rock. Drop it. She looks down, and I don't know if I can drop this rock. Because, man, it's all her resentments. It's all her bitterness. It's all the wounds. It's every wrong that anyone's done to her. And that rock is her pride. Anyone ever have a rock like that? That rock is her stubbornness. And she thinks, if I don't have this rock, who will I be? My rock is what makes me feel superior to the person who wronged me. My rock is my excuse for my miserable life. And I, I love my rock. It's my pet rock. In a moment of sanity, in a moment that's just from God, she says, you know what? Why would I cling to this? Why should I cling to this stupid rock that's making me miserable? It's destroyed my joy. It's just embittered my spirit. It has poisoned my past. It's killing my future. And she lets go of the rock. And all of a sudden, she's, She's buoyant, she's floating, and she's able to swim, and she's free, and she swims over to the boat, and she climbs up on board, and they're all like, yeah, high five, you made it to the boat, called sobriety. And then as they're sailing, they see another guy come up to the dock, and he jumps in, and he starts swimming, and then Mary's on the boat, and you know what Mary says to that guy? Drop the rock. Drop the rock. Love is not irritable. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love drops the rock. And, of course, the place for all of our rocks is the cross, right? Because that's where 
That's where sin and love met. Sin and love met on the cross, and love won. And love won. And that's the place where I receive ultimate forgiveness at the cross. And if I'm going to receive ultimate forgiveness from God at the infinite cost of the life of Jesus, how could I refuse to forgive another human being for really a finite amount of debt that I've been forgiven for an infinite amount of debt? I've got to set my rock down. All my resentments, all my bitterness, all the things all my hurts, all my wounds, all my grudges, horrible sense of self-superiority, and I can do self-superiority better than anyone in this room. See how well I did it? So I'm going to ask you, it's just, you know, this is the ask, right? You know, in every sermon, there's a little bit of tell, and there's a little bit of ask. So this is the ask part. I'm going to ask you to think about dropping your rock. Maybe this is the day. Maybe it's a little irritating rock that's just festering a little bit, right? Maybe it's a really heavy rock. Maybe you're not even sure what that will look like if you set it down, what your life will be like without it. How do I lose my pride, my stubbornness? Maybe somebody's damaged you or betrayed you, and they've not repented and you're not able to enter a relationship with them, and you're not able to reconcile because they're not willing to acknowledge that they've hurt you. I don't know what all that means, but at some point, you're just hurting yourself by carrying it. There's no formula for that. But you can still put down your rock and get on a boat. That leads to salvation. And you can just say, God, I'm putting this problem, this person, this burden, this rock in your hands. I'm so tired of carrying this weight in my mind and my soul. And I need my hands for better and other things like to swim. And I'll tell you, it's pretty frustrating to go through a chunk of your time and a chunk of your life realizing I've been carrying this rock and it has not served me well. And it will kill you. It will kill your spirit. And you've met people who have been killed by their rocks. You're probably thinking about somebody right now. It's interesting, the word rock is really important in the Bible. It's used dozens and dozens of times. And the word rock is usually referred to in Scripture as God. The psalmist says, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. Now, the rock in the ancient world was a picture of strength. They didn't have drills or explosives. It was a picture of strength. The idea here is, I don't hold the rock. The rock holds me. God's my rock, my strength, my sure foundation. Jesus said one time, a wise person builds their house on the rock, not the sand. The psalmist says, and I love this, I hope you're paying attention here. The psalmist says, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. So here's what I want to leave with you. You can, if you want You can walk out of here clinging to the rock of resentment and bitterness and irritation, or you can cling to a rock that is higher than I, but you can't do both. You have to choose, and how you choose will determine your spiritual maturity and if you're able to love. It's really simple. 
but it's really hard. So I'm challenging you just to say, hey, I'm going to put down the rock. You want to look at couples that have been together for years, 30, 40, 50 years, you know why? They put down the rock. It's hard for you to imagine me doing anything wrong in my marriage with Renee, I know. But trust me, Renee's put down the rock a lot of times. And, and that's because of love. Not because of me. It's love. So make today the day that you put down your rock and you cling to a rock that's higher than you. Let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks for Jesus. For he taught us on the cross in a moment when he could have said, Father, remember these people who are nailing me to the cross. Father, remember these people who are whipping me. He could have said, Father, remember the person who put that crown of thorns on my head. Father, remember the people that put me on this cross. Jesus could have said those things. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For Jesus was love, and love keeps no record of wrongs. Love always drops the rock. So, Lord, help us to put down that rock of bitterness and pride and resentment and stubbornness and let go of all the wounds that we received so that we can swim to a boat called salvation, sobriety, life. And let us cling to a rock that is higher than us, higher than I. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who taught us as we say now together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not in temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.